and welcome to the Spirit Guide Society podcast. My name is Pedro Shanahan and I'm your spirit guide. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing the one and only F. Paul Picot, former writer for the New York Times and owner of the Spirit Journal, founder of Beverage Alcohol Research, which is by far the highest standard of bartender training in the alcohol industry these days. Um, Also, he's the judging director of the Ultimate Beverage Challenge, life member of the Keepers and and master of Keepers of the Quake, uh, life member of the Bourbon Hall of Fame and the Order of the Writ with the Kentucky Distillers Association. And then also, I can't pronounce this one. What is the Armagnac, uh, Paul? What is the name of the Armagnac organization? Pedro, it's, it's just good to say that I'm a life member of the Armagnac Musketeers. The Armagnac Musketeers. <laughs> it's in, in front of me, it's in French. I'm like going to murder this. So I, I just uh, <laughs> I saved myself the embarrassment. Thank you, Paul. No worries, my friend. How are you? I'm great, man. I just wanted to kind of delve into your world a little bit. I think the people who listen to our podcast sure. would be really interested in in knowing kind of like to me, I think you as someone who has paved the way for everything that I do, like there wouldn't be a Spirit Guys Society podcast if there hadn't in the past been the Spirits Journal. Can you give us a little background of like how the Spirits Journal started and why did it come about and, and when this is, well, I mean, you were way ahead of the curve of, of the rest of the country. So give us some of the roots of your organization. Well, I, I, you're, you're heaping much too much credit to me, but thank you. Um, I, I think it really came about uh, when I moved to New York from California. I worked in the wine industry for 10 years up in Sonoma County. And I moved to New York to write about wine, and I opened up a wine school. And the wine school sessions, uh, some gentleman from the New York Times came to me and said, do you want to write for the New York Times Sunday Magazine? And my response, of course, was, who do I have to kill? Um, no, actually, actually, Pedro, it wasn't. Uh, I, I was kind of dumbfounded. And I said, well, sure, what do you, you, know, what do you want me to write about? And they said, I'd li- we'd like you to write about Scotch whiskey for, this, for the Sunday magazine. And I said, I have to be honest with you. I'm a wine guy. I know nothing about spirits. And they said, do you want the job or not? And I said, of course, (laughs) I will learn. So that's really what kicked it off, to be honest. And um, uh, my my contributions to the Sunday magazine of the New York Times. Now, this is 1989 when no one was writing about spirits in the United States. And I mean no one. Um, Fortunately, I mean, knock on wood, the uh, the. Uh, special, the special sections that I wrote for the New York Times became hideously popular. And so they kept, at, they kept wanting me to write more and more and more. And I guess it all happened in a way that the spirits producers around the world recognized that somebody was finally writing about spirits in the United States. So they started sending me all of their products to my office. And my, my tiny little office in New York City, Pedro, became this, this absurd collection. It was a, a, a repository for all the spirits that were available at the time in the late 80s. 
and it became clear to me since since uh, cognac producers were sending me their cognacs, Armagnac, uh, vodka, every you name it, they were sending it to me because they wanted me to write about it in the New York Times. It made sense to me to start the Spirit Journal, um, but my the thing that was important to me was that we would never accept advertising. And because uh, Sue and I never accepted advertising, uh, it was clear that we were making a statement that we were independent. We couldn't be bought. And I think it, at the end of the day, that was really what made the Spirit Journal so popular was that we just, there was no bias in our evaluations. And um, I, I think that's what really caught on and people really respected that. They responded to the fact that we didn't accept advertising, so we were never compromised in any way in our reviews. Yeah, that's it's really mind-blowing. And I would like to back it up a little bit. Like It, it sounds like it all just kind of came about by popular demand, and, and you had to grow personally as a taster in order just to kind of like meet this need that the public seemed to want. Their curiosity needed someone to kind of vet things out for them. Um, let's talk about a little bit, like, I mean, because I, I think you are one of the masters in the world of describing smell and taste, but for someone who maybe is a wine drinker or a beer drinker, how do you make the jump from fermented beverages like wine and beer to spirits because I know that must have been challenging for you in the beginning and how did you go about like kind of breaking through that wall of fire so to speak you know well, as, as Lou it, Bryson talks you, about it, for the for the first two years Pedro um, because I had cut my teeth with the wine industry in Sonoma County I had a totally different regimen for approaching wines than what was needed for spirits. So it actually took me about two years to make that shift from going from beverages that were 12 to 14% alcohol <clears throat> all the way up to 40 and more. Uh, it, it Actually, I had headaches for two years, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> and and it, was, it, was when I, it was when I started traveling with Booker No, when Booker and I were um, together traveling around the country um, doing tastings for the small batch collection, at one, one dinner, and I think it was in Kansas City, Booker and I were having dinner after one of the seminars, and I was kind of looking down, and, and Booker said, what's the matter, boy? And I said, geez, I just have these headaches. Since I've been writing a Spirits, I have headaches, and I've never had headaches in my life. So he said, well, show me what you're doing, boy. And so I, I showed him how I was tasting spirits, and he said, boy, I love you like a son, but geez, you're dumb. And he said, your problem is that you're inhaling solely through your nose when you should leave your lips parted. And you'll circumvent a lot of the alcohol that way. Mm -hmm. And that was, I'll tell you, Pedro, that was an epiphany for me. And I, I am so grateful to Booker for telling me that I was dumb <laughs> because he was right. And I was using the wrong regimen 
to taste spirits. And he, that, that changed everything. And once I started doing that, it, it just flowed very, very easily from there. So were you part of the creation of those Jim Beam, kind of those heritage products, like the, uh, the small batch and the, and the Basil Hayden's and the Knob Creek and all those things? Were you like helping Booker figure out Booker's? Oh, no, I would never. I would. Hey, boy, I wish. But no, <laughs> uh, it, was, it, was, it was really later on that I became a consultant. Probably that ended up being more towards the late 90s. <clears throat> when uh, when I actually opened up uh, my shop as a consultant, and now it's probably about thirty percent of what I do on a on a daily basis: consult and create things for people. But no, a Booker was really important in terms of my evolution as a professional taster for spirits. He changed everything just by that one simple thing of just saying, "Leave your lips parted." Yeah. That's something we talk a lot about in the Whiskey Society because I think it's very common for people when they stick their nose in a glass of spirits to just be completely overwhelmed and you really just have to get people to understand they need to slow it down because it's not like yeah, smelling wine exactly. or beer. Well, and you know as one of the premier spirits educators in the world that it's the natural thing to do for people, especially for consumers, but also for trade people. <clears throat> to want to take a big inhalation, you know, and if it, if especially if there's if they're inhaling a cask strength bourbon or you know uh, or a high level uh, high velocity uh, tequila or vodka, you know it it burns your all of your membranes in in your uh, smelling apparatus. So it's much better, as you say, and as I'm sure as I know you teach, to take it slow, going gradually. And you'll enjoy it that much more by, by taking it slow. Yes, for sure. Now, okay, for those true cocktail nerds, the people who work in the bar industry, can you give us a little background story of how the beverage alcohol resource started? Because I think that's got to be one of the most interesting stories and that it really has compelled the cocktail movement in America as we know it, what you guys started. Can you... Tell us about like how that began. Well, that that started Pedro when uh, again, and we're talking about now in the early two thousands, <clears throat> and it was it was clear to Dale DeGroff and myself that um, bartending education just wasn't keeping pace with where it should be at that time. And so Dale and I actually started looking at properties around New York. We started looking for event space probably around 2004 because Dale, is, as the cocktail guy and me as the spirits guy, we figured our teaming up would be a good thing to create a school. We met up with Doug Frost, Steve Olson, and Dave Wondrich in uh, San Francisco. And Dale and I told them what we were doing, and, and Steve Olson and Doug Frost said, "God, you know, we're thinking. We've been thinking along the same line. We've actually been uh, thinking of starting school ourselves." And I looked at all four of them, and I said, "Look, this is stupid. We're all friends. Why don't we do something on a grander scale than just pairing off, doing a couple of a uh, couple of us doing things?" 
why don't we, why don't the five of us, why don't we create something that would be the, you know, like the, not just setting the bar, but be the bar. And uh, they all agreed because we were all friends anyway, and we wanted to hang out more. I mean, to be honest, I could say, Pedro, that we created Beverage Alcohol Resource just to spend more time together. (laughs) It's turned out to be now 15 years later where it's become this amazing, um, amazing phenomenon that's that's, uh, between Bar Smarts, uh, the program we created for Perno Ricard, and uh, the Bar Five Day. You know, we've taught over 40,000 bartenders around the world. So it's 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 been an amazingly rewarding uh, professional perk, I think, for all of us. And, and just just the fact just the fact that we still considering the the five very strong personalities that we are considering we haven't killed each other over fifteen years. <laughs> You're all still friends, <laughs> really. <laughs> Actually, I, you know, I, I I tend to think. The, the four of them, and now, of course, Andy Seymour, uh, who we took on as a full partner in 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I think the, the six of us really are extended family to each other. We, I think we've actually really gotten a lot closer over the years. And um, I, I, you know, I think it shows in how we teach because we, do, we just get along. And uh, egos are left at the door when we're together. And I think that's really why it's worked so well. Well, it's been a huge boon for the entire drinking public in America. I know that all the bartenders at Seven Grand and most of our single spirit bars have all taken the Bar Smarts thing. And we encourage all of our new hires to do it as well. And um, we, we, I like to retake it every once in a while myself just to kind of remind myself of everything I've forgotten. You know, like doing all these spirits tastings wow. can have an effect on your, your brain cell count. You uh, know, and, and the other, but the other thing is we are in the middle right now of completely revamping the Bar Smarts program just because things are evolving so quickly. Every year for the Bar Five Day, which we hold just once a year in New York, we have to completely redo the manual and update it every year. And the manual's over 300 pages long. So, wow. But just because, I mean, as you, I don't have to tell you, you're at the forefront of this. There's, things are changing so fast every month in the spirits category that you have to stay ahead of the curve. And mm-hmm. so that's part of the challenge of what we do. But, you know, that's fine. So, it, I, we ne- to be honest, we never, ever ever in our wildest dreams in 2005 when we all got together we never thought it would we would take this as far as we have and uh it's it's been a pure joy uh i mean you know and again as you know as an educator there's nothing more satisfying than having somebody come up to you and say wow thanks for that lecture thanks for that seminar you really opened up a whole area for me that I was really kind of shaky on. That, to me, you know, I don't care about money. It, it's somebody coming up to me and saying something like that that makes me really feel, yeah, this has all been worth it, man. Yeah, right on, man. Well, along those lines, for someone who's not in the bar industry, what is it, what's out there for them? Uh, is the Spirits Journal where people who are kind of like, 
eager to learn more but not necessarily working in the bar business, is that their resource? Sure. Um, well, we've, we've temporarily put Super Journal on hiatus, and the reason being we are so slowed under with finishing Kindred Spirits 3 and, not, and then now writing the history of Buffalo Trace wow. uh, that we've actually had to, just because they're just two of us, Sue and myself, Mm-hmm. Um, we just we just needed the time and space, so temporarily we put it on hiatus. We'll pick it up again once we finish both books. And but, so you're in the third uh, edition of Kindred that, Spirits know, now. We're we're hoping to get it out this year, and I believe that we will. We're about eighty five percent finished with it, and uh, in fact, Steve Olson, as we speak, is writing the uh, foreword to it. Um, so we're wow. we're pulling it together. I'm, we're hoping that it's going to be out uh, fall of this year, Pedro. Oh, that's very very exciting for sure. Twenty twenty four hundred new reviews of whiskeys, brandies, vodkas, tequilas, mezcal, everything. <laughs> so well, then that will know, be our strong recommend for the drinking public who doesn't necessarily work in the bar business, nor would they be down to take the bar yeah. sports tests. But um, yeah, well, exactly. You know, and. And in Kindred Spirits 3, I talk about how to taste like a professional, mm-hmm. how to go through that regimen and, and develop your own regimen. And even if you're not in, this, in the beverage industry, you can still become a really accomplished taster. And I go through step by step how anybody can do that. You know, and, and I, don't, I don't believe that people like you and me have any special gifts to tasting. I actually think it's just repetition. I think it's experience. I think it's being really mindful of what you're doing and creating this mental library that you remember. Oh, yeah, well, uh, beef feeder tastes different from Tanqueray because of this. Mm-hmm. And if, if, if you're able to pick out two or three different characteristics of any spirit and then kind of file it away in your mental library, you can become a really great taster. I, I think anybody has the chance to become a great taster. You and I have just become good tasters because we've been around it. We've been doing it for a long time. Yes, I totally agree. I'm always stunned when I'm hosting the Whiskey Society or the Rum Society or the Mezcal Collective at the imaginary uh, foods that come out of people's mouths, like uh, not actual foods, but the ideas that just come out of people's imaginations you know someone will say something like it's like candy coated peppercorns or it's like um you know uh tarry popcorn you know what i mean like these things that don't exist but somehow through the slowing down of the experience and really the introversion of what people are imagining as they smell and taste these crazy things come out you know like these these melange of different ideas that turn into these like mythical foods that have never existed before. When I'm with a, con- particularly with a consumer group or a trade group that doesn't really know that much, I try to give them examples of what to look for. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of the time, if somebody says to me, oh, that's a muscular uh, whiskey, uh, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, better, it's, better to, it's better to say... Oh yeah, I, you know, I that's kind of buttery or creamy or or I get uh, kind of like a little bit of uh, nicotine or I, I get tobacco in that. 
it's so much better to say descriptors that people can relate to. Mm-hmm. And as soon as somebody anthropomorphizes a spirit, I, I know that person doesn't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> Some guy in a tasting years ago said, oh, that's a very buxom whiskey. You oh, know, wow. and all the women in the audience kind of rolled their eyes. And yeah. <laughs> kind of like, well, what do you mean by that? If you say, well, it's robust, or if you say, wow, you know, it's, it's, it's warm on my palate, or wow, there's a lot of wood resin in it, then people get that. But mm-hmm. to say stupid things like, well, it's, it's, uh, it's buxom, or it's masculine, or it's feminine, mm-hmm. are, are really dumb things to say. Oh, totally. But, but you know, it, people just, I, I try to give people vocabulary Mm-hmm. that they can automatically relate to. Oh, yeah, that's like raspberry, or that's like cherry preserves, or that's, that's like malted milk. Or, and everybody knows what those things are. I think that you're one of the first people who kind of like introduced the, the broader public to the idea of using food words to describe beverages and how important that is oh, because yeah. that's, people can totally relate to that. They have an intense exactly. memory of it, and it just jumps right to the forefront of their mind as they're trying to smell and taste. Well, and the the thing I always tell audiences is beverage alcohol is food. Mm -hmm. I mean, take whiskey. All the components there of bread, you you have water, you have grain, you have yeast. All of those things go into making bread. (laughs) So, or, or, you know, if you're talking about brandy, you have fruit. So that could be fruit compotes or jams or, or preserves. So to me, I agree 100%. If, if you can put terminology and descriptors within the framework of cuisine or food preparation, it makes it so much more easy for people to relate to it. Totally. Can you speak a little bit to the actual tasting experience when you're going through a ton of spirits and like you're trying to, you're, you're doing your judging, you're, you're being a judge at the ultimate beverage yep. challenge and you sit down to yep. a panel of all these different spirits and it's all blind, uh, and, but you, you know the proof points and you know kind of the age statements if there are any. Um, but as you're doing that professionally, like you're sitting down to several panels over the course of the day, how do you keep your palate from getting totally blown out? Well, one of the reasons I, I actually I think you bring up such an important point because one of the reasons that I started uh, along with Sue, my wife, uh, Ultimate Beverage Challenge in 2010 was because I got we both got sick and tired of being judges and being abused as judges in competitions. And I think the, the breaking point for us was we were, we were both in Barbados judging a run rum competition. And on the third or fourth flight, we were given uh, about 10 or 12 overproof rums. And I looked at the, I looked at the, the organizer and I said, are you crazy? giving us 12 overproof rums by number four, our taste buds are going to be completely charred like charcoal briquettes. Oh yeah. And that means that from number five through number 12, they're going to get rotten scores because our palates will be ruined. Mm -hmm. So the guys, the organizer said, yeah, well that's what it is. And so Sue and I got up and we all, we walked out 
And on the plane back, I said to her, I'm quitting every competition that I'm either judging director in or that I'm a judge in, and we're going to own the property of our own competition. And we're going to make it friendly for judges. We're never going to have them judge any more than six spirits in a flight. We're going to give them plenty of time to relax and, and catch up with emails and, and Instagrams in between flights. Um, we're going to make certain that every spirit is uh, served at the proper service temperature in the proper glassware. In other words, we made Ultimate Spirits Challenge judge-friendly. And that's why so many people want to judge with us. Mm -hmm. Because word has gotten out that after over the last 10 years, this is the one you want to judge at because you're never confronted with 12 overproof rums in one flight. So to me, that was so important, Pedro, because a judge that's fresh, a judge that is not overworked, is going to give far more accurate results. And that's, that's the whole purpose of Ultimate Spirits Challenge, is giving the most accurate results we can. Mm -hmm. And that's the other reason for that... Uh, the other reason for that, that's why we take a whole month. Oh, really? We take the month of March to do, you know, through thousands of spirits. We take the whole month. We don't, and we build our own facility. I mean, we're, we are, the Ultimate Spirits Challenge is the only competition that has its own brick and mortar facility. Oh, wow. So, I mean, I have taken every conceivable step towards the, the most independent, unbiased judging uh, in probably in the world, I think. And that's, that's, I think that's why we keep growing in double digits every year uh, because the industry is getting the message that these guys are doing it right mm -hmm. uh, because the judges uh, are our best apostles. They go out and they talk about what a great time they had and and how much they learned and and how fresh they were throughout the process so that's that's the key for me it's, keeping the judges yeah. fresh keeping them totally engaged mentally mm -hmm. so that they're able to give the, the, the best most careful painfully uh, um, uh, approached results uh, that we could possibly provide and it's just out of respect for all the distillers in the world. Absolutely. The I mean, producers deserve no, you, it. You and I have been around this game long enough to know how hard all these men and women in the distilling industry work, uh, you know, yeah. incredible hours. Mm -hmm. Just the investment alone. I mean, when you think of the craft people who are out there and, and how much money it's, it takes to, to create a distillery and to create a brand, I feel a sense of responsibility to those people that, you know, if I'm doing a review or if I'm doing a consulting job for them or if their product is entered into Ultimate Spirits Challenge, I feel the weight of responsibility that we, we owe something to them. We owe, it's our responsibility to honor what they do by giving them truthful results. So it's, it's, I feel the, the weight of responsibility as, as the owner of Ultimate Spirits Challenge mm -hmm. to give the best possible chance for every product that's entered. I don't, 
I don't care if the product, Pedro, is $4.99 or $4,999. The $4.99 spirit will get the same treatment as the $5,000 spirit. And I think that's how it should be. To me, that's the whole point of this is to be fair. Mm -hmm. I want to know, what what is the order of the writ? That's part of the Kentucky Distillers Association. What what is that? It's it's a brand new society uh, created by the members of the Kentucky Distillers Association that honors people. Very, it's it's kind of the it's kind of the Kentucky bourbon equivalent of Keepers of the Quake out of Scotland mm-hmm. and the Musketeers Where, of Armagnac. This, this, Exactly, where this particular society just started last year. Uh, I happen to be unbelievably lucky enough uh, to be in the first induction class, Um, but it's just honoring people who have spent a long time promoting, honoring the the whole history and and pedigree of uh, bourbon Mm -hmm. and Kentucky whiskeys. And um, so I, you know, man, I took my breath away when they said, "Hey, do you want to be a, a life member of this?" I mean, wow, uh, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, I, it's, uh, it really took my breath away. So yeah, truly amazing. So that's what that's all about. Okay, uh, I want to get into some um, really nerdy world here, if we can. Like when we talk about <laughs> this is this is my personal these this, these are personal questions coming now in terms of uh, you know, but people talk about whiskey being the most complex spirit out there. You know, often because of such variants of flavors that come from the wood and the, the maturation. Uh, mm. But I've found I've been really stumped at different times when I'm tasting brandies. Or when I'm tasting, well, even mezcal could be considered a brandy, um, and mm. I, I, I attribute some of that to the density of the spirit, meaning they mm. use smaller stills; they're not using column stills, and so there's mm. it's much kind of a, a basier spirit that's being produced, and they can be a little more stymying in terms of being able to identify like how different varietals of agave uh, end up Mm -hmm. having the flavor profiles that they do or how different varietals of grapes used in different cognacs or armagnacs, how how do they end up being the way they are? You know what I mean? I, 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 I for a long time felt after reviewing 31,000 spirits over the last 30 years, that Scotch whiskey was actually the most complex spirit of all. Um, and I, I tend to think that it would, I'd lean towards single malt rather than blended or blended malt. Um, however, that said, I think I've kind of changed my tack. I've changed my core. And I actually think mezcals are perhaps right now the most complex spirit of all. Mm-hmm. Maybe even maybe in a you know kind of a tied for the lead for me <clears throat> with uh, the single malts from Isla. Mm-hmm. And I kind of draw a correlation between the two because when 
when I first started writing about Scotch whiskey for the New York Times Sunday Magazine way back in 1989, I could not tolerate Isla whiskeys just just because of the, the I mean, I would write about them, but I really, it took me about four years to kind of get into them. And I've come to think of them as probably the most complex of all uh, Scotch whiskeys. The same with Mezcal. I remember years ago when I first tasted the Delma Gaze with my, my radio friend, uh, co-host Gary Regan back in the late 90s, mm. Gary and I just were, were saying, oh, I could never drink this. These are terrible. It took me that same kind of journey to learn how to appreciate deep complexity of Isla single ball. Mm. <laughs> right now, I, I kind of think they're tied. But, yeah. you know, as, I tell you, as you know, there there's some amazingly complex American whiskeys as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the whole movement now with American single malt and, you know, with a, with a commission being created and, and uh, new bylaws being created for American single malt, I think that could be an area where that might be one of the more complex spirits in the world right now. So it's, I think that's why I keep doing this for a living, Pedro, because it's always evolving. It's always changing, and it really keeps my interest up. We're in this wonderful space right now of intrepid adventure mm-hmm. by distillers that I think it's a movable feast as to what right now is the most complex spirit. I, I think complex spirits are coming from just about every category at the moment because the, te- the technology of distilling and wood maturation is improving and changing all the time. Mm-hmm. That I, I think it's just changing the, the 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 complexity of just about every category is evolving so fast right now. And that's oh, yeah. why I keep tasting. <laughs> yes. It, it's just every week there's something else where I'm going, wow, I can't believe that this is a vodka. I can't believe this is a tequila. I, it's just, it just changes. And yeah. I, I think it, it's, it's this magical moment you and I are sharing with all these millions and millions of consumers and, and these great master distillers and master blenders. It, it's a really golden age and so it, it's just fun it, I, I tell you it never ceases to amaze me what's going on in spirits right now it's so true I, I think as we continue to try to understand the mezcal rush that's going on that there's going to be a deeper understanding of kind of the micro regionalism of it all like how there's so many sub genus of varietals of agaves mm. that come from every yeah. area and the traditions are in the ancestral and the artisanal methods are so varied that there we're going to have to become very um subtle in our understanding meaning that like yeah this is kind of a very typical sotol from this area or a ricea from or a bacchanor you know we're gonna get into those mm-hmm. subgenus deeper and deeper understandings um and how those flavor profiles have their own idiosyncratic kind of characteristics you know well what's concerning me right now pedro about mezcal is because of the unbelievable exponential growth of it 
that a lot of the small villages just can't con- they they can't keep up with demand. Mm-hmm. And so my my fear with Mezcal is that, uh, with the exception of a very few producers, I think the issue comes in with a lot of the large companies who are buying brands and who are lording over the producers in small villages may not understand fully the the effect of such huge success uh, on the small villages and and how maybe this will force villagers to be um, harvesting their agave either when it's too young and not fully ripened or that they will just wipe out one particular type, one particular uh, strain of, of, of agave. And my fear is that the huge success of Mezcal right now can actually turn around and bite Mezcal and the traditions of it in the ass. And that's my concern. That, yes, I'm happy for the growth, but I also think that we have to be careful as an industry not to destroy the traditions and the pedigree of Mezcal, and in the process, hurting hurting the villages that are so dependent upon Mezcal. Definitely well said. Well, I want to ask you, if when Kindred Spirits 3 comes out, could we possibly do another interview with you? Oh, Pedro, I would be so happy to do that. <clears throat> I will tell you what, flat out, I don't do interviews. And I don't do interviews because I would rather keep a low profile. I, I, growing up in the Midwest, I was always taught, don't talk about yourself. It's very unbecoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've always kind of shied away from interviews. But you are a different story because oh. of how much I respect what you do. So anytime you want to do anything, you know I will be there for you. Man, well, that I'm honored to hear you say that. I'm Seriously, thank you for all you've done, um, and I'm excited for the third edition of Kindred Spirits to come out, so we'll definitely take you up on that and get you for another interview. Maybe we can have Sue as well, because it would be oh, interesting would to her. Be it'd be fun to hear her perspective on the whole thing as well. Well, it would be, it'd be good to have the brains in the family on the show. <laughs> 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 oh man well thank you Paul for taking the time to talk with us for the Spirit Guide Society podcast um, is there a digital version of Spirits Journal that people can go to like for people that aren't doing bar smarts or that kind of thing is there a good resource that you help provide that's out there and accessible online we, we just absolutely tell them to go to the website and we have reviews on there and, and a lot of information a lot of educational things spiritjournal.com really of course very easy well thank you f paul pico for taking the time to talk with us we will call you back as soon as we hear of uh, kindred spirits three hitting the shelves um you'll be getting you'll be getting the first book of it pedro oh man i'm super stoked (laughs) (laughs) all right well i look forward to it and i look forward to, to talking to sue as well you bet Thanks so much. And uh, thank and, you. Andrew as well. Thank you. Thank you. He's tipping his invisible hat to you as we speak. <laughs>
Thanks, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. The Spirit Guide Society is a Spirit Adventures production in association with Bitten from the Apple Productions. Special thanks to Tone Mesa for their post-production and audio services. The show is produced by Andrew Apple and me, Pedro Shanahan. Executive producer, Andrew Abrahamson. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Spirit Guide SOC. We'll be there to answer any questions you have, share what we're drinking, and more. And if you're still thirsty, you can always find more episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to always drink responsibly. That means don't drink to forget. Drink to remember. Remember.